The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our un unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Father, as we come before your word this morning, I pray that you would just be working in us through your spirit, just in that, that even that, that passage that Tom just read uh, captures so well what we'll be looking at today. I pray, Father, that you would be working in each individual member of our body that you would help us to see uh, the, the beauty and the need of the whole. Father, as we come before your word, just I pray that you would humble us and, and work, work in it through your Holy Spirit in us, that we would understand it, that, that we would believe it to be true, that, we'd be, that we would believe you to be true, that we would obey your word because it is your word. Father, help me uh, as I proclaim your word to be faithful to it. Help me to only speak the truth of your word, nothing for myself. Father, help all of us as hearers uh, to be people who are prepared to hear you speak, who are desirous of 
knowing you more fully through your revealed word. You strengthen and equip us, build us up together. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you want to turn to Acts chapter 2, this morning we're going to be concluding our Acts mini-series as we've been uh, kind of coming off of the tail end of the Gospel of John. And in this mini-series, as the, t- the, the t- subtitle captures, we're looking at the continuing work of Jesus in his church. It's just, it's vital for us to understand that Jesus, after uh, his death, burial, and resurrection, isn't, isn't simply sitting at the Father's right hand doing nothing, but he is living and active in his church. And it's, it's quite apparent as you work your way through Acts just how active Christ is. And we started the series kind of looking at that question, wondering how is it that Jesus could tell his disciples that he is about to leave them, but that it would be for their good, that it would be for their benefit. So we began the series looking at the ascension of Christ, and we saw that in the ascension of Christ, he, he not only ascended bodily, but he, he sits at the Father's right hand and he intercedes for us. It's quite important and sobering to consider that Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the creator of all that we see and all that we don't see, is interceding for us. He, as we talked about, is in in his ascension really really is the great high priest that the book of Hebrews so eloquently describes. Our high priest is gone to represent us before God. And then the following week, uh, we talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we saw that as, as, God, as Jesus ascends, he sent his Holy Spirit to work in his church, to indwell believers. And we considered the day of Pentecost as the Holy Spirit came and exactly what the Holy Spirit was coming to do, not coming to make much of himself, but coming to make much of Christ. And it's really Christ working through the power of the Holy Spirit uh, that invigorates and brings to new life, not only the individual believers, but the individual believers as a whole, as as the church The third week, we looked at the foundation of the apostles' teaching. Again, you see this flow as Christ ascends as our priest. He sends the Holy Spirit. Christ, as our our great prophet, sends his Holy Spirit and speaks through the apostles so that the apostles themselves were entrusted with the very words of Christ so that they could write and and, uh, finish the canon of scripture so that we could have the whole revealed word of God. And at this place in history where we are, we have just a a fantastic blessing to be able to know that we have the very words of God, that we are able to open these and study them to know who God is and what, what duty he requires of us. We can know the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he, Jesus Christ has come to rescue us, to, to save us. 
save us from our sins and save us from God, save us from God's wrath because he absorbed God's wrath on our account. He, he took the punishment for our sins on the cross. So Jesus ascends, he sends his Holy Spirit, he works through the apostles' teaching, and today we're looking specifically at the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of Jesus in his church in what we call the communion of the saints. This is, as we'll, as we'll dig into this, this is our understanding that we are united not only individually to Christ, but because we are united to Christ, we are united to one another. That all those who come to faith in Jesus Christ through the, through the working of the Holy Spirit are united. We're going to dig into the details of that. I would recommend about a month and a half, two months ago now, uh, Doug Searle, pastor that we support in Bonaire, he was here and he preached a, a wonderful sermon on fellowship, the fellowship of, of the saints, very much touching a lot of what I'll, I'll touch on today. But he, he kind of gave a, a fantastic biblical theology of sorts of fellowship. So I would encourage you to listen to that. I'll kind of build off of that some in our message today. So we're going to look at two passages today, one from the end of Acts 2, one from the end of Acts chapter 4, and then a little bit of the beginning of Acts chapter 5. But both of these um, kind of summaries of activity within the church come at the end of sermons. So Peter preaches the day of Pentecost, and then we're told about the activity of this communion of the saints within the church. And then Peter, as we saw last week, as Peter and John are entering the temple, and there's the lame man who's been there uh, so long that his healing can't be ignored even the Jewish authorities recognize that they cannot sweep this under the rug. It is a clear and evident uh, witness to, uh, to the Spirit's work. So at the end, as, as Peter preaches a sermon there, the, the following day gives a, def a defense before the Jewish authorities. Then again, we're given a kind of summary statement about the activity within the church. So look with me at Acts chapter 2. We'll begin with verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." Now flip with me to the end of uh, Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 32. So we'll see the next summary of activity within the church. Acts 4, 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. 
There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was, al- who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife, wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. The first aspect uh, of this, as we consider the communion of the saints, I just want to briefly touch on because I touched on this kind of a greater depth when I looked at, uh, when we looked together at the coming of the Holy Spirit. But one of the first things that the Spirit does as he comes, uh, as, God, as Christ sent him, Christ ascends, he sends his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit unites us together with Christ. So we are united to Christ. We have union with him. We, as we talked about a couple of weeks, it be, means we become partakers with him. Partakers in what he has accomplished and wonderfully partakers in all the blessings that are ours in Christ. We are adopted, and we spoke about two weeks ago how one of the wonderful things that the Spirit does for us is he witnesses to us. He testifies to our hearts that when we are truly the children of God, he testifies that we are indeed sons of God. And and we use, a lot of times, Scripture uses the language of sons because in, in the scriptural language, it's the son who is the inheritor of the father's blessings, of the, of, of the inheritance. So we, male and female, are sons of the living God because we are inheritors, adopted children of the blessings of God that come through Jesus Christ. So we, are, we become partakers of Christ through the Holy Spirit. And as I mentioned just a minute ago, the, the union doesn't end there. Because as we are, become partakers with Christ, we become partakers with one another. Our union with 
one another is formed by our union with Christ. It's the important order there that we are, we are united with Christ and in our union with him, we are united with one another. As Doug, uh, again, as I said a little over a month ago, mentioned, this union is a reality. It's not something that we have to form, that we have to create. And this is why the order is so important. We are united through the, through the Holy Spirit to Christ. And because we are united to Christ, we are united to one another. It is done. It is a reality of the Christian faith. We are united to one another. And then much of the New Testament is written as the apostles say, now act like it. This is truth. You are united to one another. You can't help it. If you are in Christ, you are united to one another. We have a communion with one another. This is why we call it uh, the communion of the saints. Ephesians 4, 3 does give us instruction about unity. And it says, it uses the word maintain. Again, this is, this is that idea. You are in reality, united to one another. You have a communion with one another. Now maintain that. Act like it. It's a call for us to exercise what is true of us in Christ. As we, as we studied through John and John 17 and Jesus' high priestly prayer, one of, one of his prayers for us, he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. And as we looked at John 17, it's the, the beauty of that high priestly prayer. Jesus mentions this multiple times. The union and the love that he shared with the Father is something that we are now brought into. As, as sons and daughters of God, we are brought into that relationship so that Jesus can say, Father, the the unity that you and I have shared for all eternity, I want to bring them into this union. I want them to be one, even as you and I are one. And as Tom read in, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul gives that beautiful analogy of, of, the, of the body that the, the body of Christ, even though we are individual members, as, as Romans 12 kind of spells out a little cl more clearly, we are individual members, but we are part of this body. We form a body with Christ as our head. We, we are many parts or many members, but we are one body. And the, the, the beauty of this picture of a, of a physical body of, this, of the church that forms this, the, the, the body of Christ, Christ is the head, is as we think about our own bodies, first we consider just how beautifully our body is designed to work together. If, if I have a part of my body amputated, I feel it. I need it. Like, please don't take a, a finger. I'll, I'll, I'll keep all 10 of these digits because they help me. I need them. If I injure a part of my body, I feel it. It may be 
as Paul says, one of the, one of the seemingly less honorable parts that then we bestow the greater honor. It, it may be one of those things that I, when I am hurt in my physical body, I realize it and I want to remedy it and I want to serve that part of my body. A number of us uh, in, uh, in here have had surgeries lately. Even my, my little guy recently had a tonsillectomy and he was very careful with his voice. And we called it his mousy voice for a while. As he was, especially in the mornings and and at night, he would be very careful with his throat. When When a part of our body is operated on, when a part of our body is injured, we want to care for it. We administer medication. We administer cold and heat, and we want to bring it back to full health. And that's what, what I think is one of the beauties of the, this analogy that, that Paul draws out, the analogy of the body, is that we ought to be caring for one another. It is so difficult sometimes that as individual members... Sometimes I don't know exactly how someone else might be hurting, what need they might have. But I want to be part of the body to an extent that I know how to care for other members of my body, just like I would care for my toe if I stubbed it in the middle of the night. I feel the pain. That's why scripture can say, we, we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. We want to be so intimately involved with one another. Again, because the reality is we are. We want to be so intimately involved that we know how, when, when I am with a brother or a sister, that I can say, they're hurting. I weep with them. They're rejoicing. I rejoice with them. They are in need, whether it, whether it be spiritual or physical, physically, they, they have a need. And it goes the other way, as we'll look at momentarily. When I have the need, that I feel the desire and the comfort of expressing that need so you know how to care for me. We are many parts or many members, but one body. We care for one another. Another aspect of the ascension as we can consider the communion of the saints is, is Ephesians 4, and quoting, it's quoting Psalm 68. As Christ ascended and as the Holy Spirit pours out, he gives us gifts. What we call in uh, our, our confession, the gifts and graces. He's given us each gifts and graces. And the purpose of these gifts and graces that Christ has given us isn't, isn't to hoard them, isn't to keep them to ourselves and say, thank you, Lord, for giving me these things that I can personally benefit from. He gives us gifts and various graces for the purpose to share them with one another so that we can care for one another. Again, Ephesians uh, 4, the whole purpose, as it says, in these various gifts that God has, that Jesus has poured out upon us is to build up the body of Christ. He says, as each member functions according to his or her gifts, the body works properly and the body grows, building itself up 
in love. Building itself up in love. Because as Christ has loved us, God has loved us, Christ has loved us, Christ's love ought to come pouring out from us to one another. It's, it's that motivation that we have, that we get to love one another. And, and as we are actually given the gifts and the graces that God has given us, we are exercising those things, again, not for ourselves, but for one another. And it's, it's, it's an obligation. And we don't use the word obligation a lot. But it is an obligation. God has given us these things for that purpose of serving one another. But it's a blessed obligation. I'm going to look at a couple passages. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but Romans 12, I mentioned it a moment ago. Romans 12, 3 through 8. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. I... I, Whenever I think of something like this, I, I think of my, my dad and other elderly saints who near the end of their life are, are homebound. And I know for my dad, who was a, a pastor and then eventually had to, had to step away from the pulpit just because his health wouldn't allow him to continue preaching. And then later on, couldn't even get out of get out of bed, get out of the home to get to church because it, it just took too much from him. And I know as he laid there often, he thought, how am I contributing? How am I being an encouragement to the body? How am I serving? And one of those things that seems most powerful, most evident to me of those elderly saints is they are some of the most faithful prayer warriors that, I've, that I ever know. Because they get to this place where they realize, I can't do anything but pray. And oftentimes, it's that reminder, reminding them, oh, but prayer is exactly what we need. We overlook prayer so much. Those of us who are healthy and vibrant oftentimes don't realize how much we need prayer. So God blesses us as he, as he ages us and makes us weak and, and lays us in a bed where we can't get up to, to feel like we're part of things. Oftentimes that's when he gives us the wherewithal to say, I can pray. 
So I think of people like my father and Joe Howell who, are prayer, who were prayer warriors. Think of the ministry that my dad had with, with others just on the phone, being able to have conversations and, and care for others and share the gospel of Jesus Christ across the phone. And he was exercising his gifts. First Peter, First Peter chapter four, beginning with verse seven. Says this, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. It's the same language this time from the apostle Peter as he tells us to serve one another as each has received a gift, so serve. Again, it's that obligation that we are called to, that God has given us a gift, not simply to sit on it, but to actively serve one another with it. Everything we have is given by Christ for this purpose. It's given for the purpose of building up the body in love. We are serving out of love. And as I mentioned, the obligation goes both ways. As we read, much of the need uh, that was uh, the, the, the part of the church that had the greatest need at this time was, of course, those who weren't financially well off, those who were poor, those who were needy. And it was those who God had given property and financial well-being to that was able to go and give and help those in need. So the obligation goes both ways, where we not only are ready in love to share what we have with one another, to share the graces and the gifts that God has given us, but also to be willing to say, I am in need of those gifts and graces. I need the church to care for me. And oftentimes, this is the beauty of the church is that in one season, I may be the one in need and the church can gather around me and lift me up and strengthen me so that at another time I can turn and show that same care and affection and love to someone else who's in need and it's my turn to help lift them up. And so, so often the beauty of that is as we experience Christ's love through one another, it works to kind of just go right back where I see Christ's love poured out upon me by you. And then when I see someone hurting, I am not like the, the unforgiving servant who has just been forgiven an unpayable debt and turns and sends hit the person who owes him a small sum to prison. 
but I am the person who's been forgiven much and loved much and can turn and love you well because I have been so greatly loved. As we see in the text, it's, it's an inward reality that first exp- that expresses itself outwardly. Uh, we talked a little bit about this in Sunday school this morning. So many times it, it, we can live like Pharisees. We can live a legalistic way where we are so worried about the external, but are in, inside we're rotten. It's important for us to understand, just as it's Christ's love that pours out through us, it's an inward reality that then pours out onto others. As the text says, they were of one heart and soul. Notice it says that. It didn't say that they sold their property and, made and, and met everyone's needs, and then they were of one heart and soul. But they were of one heart and soul, and therefore they did this. They sold their properties. They, they met one another's needs. They cared for one another. We're called in Scripture not to merely be hearers of the word, but doers. So the reality of what Christ has done for us and the reality of our union with him and union with one another binds us with one heart and soul, but that that expresses itself in actually caring for one another tangibly. Philippians 2. It's one of those passages that I think is quoted so often. And I just have to, every time I want to reference it, I have to read it because it's such a beautiful passage. Philippians 2, though, I want to begin with verse 5 and work, work backwards. Philippians 2, 5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we have in this text a beautiful summary of what Jesus has done for us, that he humbled himself. He took upon himself the form of a lowly slave. He, he put himself, as Paul says in Galatians 4, under the law for us. The supreme lawgiver put himself under the law so that he might fulfill the law in our place. So much so that he would fulfill even the punishment that we deserved. So he, he obeyed even to the point of death and at that death on a cross, So we have to ask ourselves, well, what is the mind of Christ? What is the mind of Christ that Paul tells us to have? Notice that he says, have this mind of Christ because it is already ours. This is the first four verses of that chapter. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, 
any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's our motivation as we have this communion with one another, as we serve one another. It's the motivation that Christ has done this for us. He is so much more than an example. He has actually done it. And yet the example is still there for us to see that our Savior has gone before us. That if, if he not only sat down and, and gave his disciples this beautiful picture as he washed their feet in the upper room, but then he went to a cross and bled and suffered and died for you and me. He, he took upon himself the punishment and the wrath that you and I deserve. If he took that upon himself, obeyed to the point of death and death in such a miserable fashion as, as a crucifixion, then we can turn to one another and not operate out of selfish ambition, but operate out of a love and care for one another. Not counting, not counting myself as more significant than you, but loving you, counting you as more significant. The needs that are met in these passages, first we see a spiritual needs met as the passage in Ephesians 4 especially focuses on, on the, uh, the, those who are preaching and teaching, those are who are carrying the word. That is really where this text begins. We see the ordinary means of grace, as we talked about in Sunday school again, the ordinary means of grace spelled out as, we, as they sat under the apostles preaching as they were baptized and enjoyed the Lord's Supper together, as they prayed with one another, they devoted themselves to these things. And as we understand, even in, well, because it is Christ's love that we must first understand and know that it allows us to love one another appropriately. All of these things, even the, meeting the physical needs, stems and flows from the preaching of the word. We have to understand the great salvation that is ours for us to then turn around and love one another as we ought to love. We need to understand the truths of, of Philippians 2 so that we can love one another well, that we can love one another rightly. So they devoted themselves. They were surrounded by the preaching of the word. They were surrounded by, the, by baptism and communion, by prayer and fellowship with one another. The physical needs then as that inward reality as they were of one heart and, and, and soul, one heart and mind, as, as they were realizing spiritually the communion that they had in Christ, that then flowed out into meeting one another's physical needs. In 1 John, First John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, 
John writes, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. We have been given, again, these, these gifts, these graces to share for the purpose, the obligation of sharing and uplifting one another. And as the, the story here that we read in Acts 2, accounting for the early church and this life that sprung up in the early church through the work of the Spirit and uniting the believers to Christ, it comes out in their belongings, in their money. Is one of those things that, is, that John shows that we are to love one another and that ought to be evident by us meeting, helping to meet one another's needs. Hebrews 13, the author says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So we have this litmus test of, short, of, of sorts with our money. And I think as you can read through scripture, it's not a surprise to us that this is how it plays out in the church, this communion of the saints and loving and caring for one another because Christ himself taught on this so much. In Matthew 6, in his Sermon on the Mount, he tells us, do not lay up treasures for yourselves on earth, but in heaven. And he tells us why, he says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You cannot serve God and money. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When our treasure is bound up in Christ, then all this other stuff that I have I realize that it's his. And if it's his, if I belong to him, and if all that I have belongs to him, then it becomes a delight when I hear about a need. If it's a physical need, financial need, whatever it might be, it becomes my delight to use those resources that God has so graciously poured out on me that I certainly don't deserve to then love on someone else with those, to bless someone with those. Say, here, this isn't a loan. This is a gift. You are in need. And the same can be said for spiritually with our prayers. When we are considering others more highly than ourselves and we know that someone has a great need, well, then I can give of my time to get down on my knees and pray for them, to care enough to spend time praying to bring them up before the throne of God. Paul and his instructions to a young pastor named Timothy in 1 Timothy talks again about the things that God has given us. 1 Timothy 6, beginning with verse 6. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, 
and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And then in verse 17, it says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides with us everything to enjoy. They are to, to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. How often do we treat the things that God has given us as many gods, as the source of life? That I, that I, this is something I struggle with. I, I, and I envision myself as an, as an older man, I think, oh, how sweet it will be to retire someday, to retire and, and enjoy the outdoors more, to enjoy, hopefully, grandchildren and all those things. And it's not that those things are bad, but it can so often become what my hope becomes. I put my hope in this thing, and I think that's life. And Paul tells Timothy, no. Encourage those who God has blessed with, with money, with finances, with financial blessing. Encourage them to use that for the good of those around them because, and to hold on to those things that are truly life. You know, he borrows the words of Christ, not storing up treasures for themselves, but be looking way past my old age. This is... This is something that over the last few years has been more and more impactful in my heart, understanding that my, my life, as far as I think about it right now, this is a blip on the radar of my life. This is just a blip because when I die, I, am going, I have the promise that I will be present with the Lord and I will be with him and he with me in eternity. So however long God chooses to give me life in the here and now, that is just a minuscule amount of time. Why? Why would I devote so much time to grasping at the temporal things that I can't take with me? I need to have my eyes, my mind set on eternity, set on glory, set on Christ. Notice that he doesn't tell, Paul doesn't tell Timothy here to instruct the rich to become poor. He doesn't tell them, sell all that you belong and, and become poor and destitute. He doesn't say that. It's not wrong to be rich. It is wrong to love your money. It is wrong to serve it. 
We must understand that God has given us whatever we might have. God has given it to us to use for his glory. And that's so much more than just what I give to the church. Everything that I have belongs to him. He tells Paul, in, in, again in Ephesians 4, as he then talks about the, the church being built up and how this plays out, he talks about the thief and he says, tell the thief to stop his stealing and to get an honest job, not for the fact that he can just have an honest job and, and look at his bank account and say, I earned every dollar honestly, but he says, to get an honest living, to make an honest wage so that then he has something to share with others. It is all about the communion of the saints. It is all about living with one another to help meet one another's needs for esteeming one another more highly than ourselves. Then in our passage this morning, we're given two examples. First, we're given the example of Barnabas at the end of chapter four, who sold who sold a field and brought the proceeds, laid it at the apostles' feet, and he earned the nickname, he's given the nickname by the apostles, the son of encouragement. Just a short mention. Of course, we'll get to know Barnabas better as Acts continues. It was just a short statement that as the church was, was selling their property to help meet the needs of those who were needy, one such example is Barnabas. But then we're given a negative example in Ananias and Sapphira. And it's important that we cover this passage. It's, you know, to be honest, as a pastor, it's like, do I really want to cover Ananias and Sapphira? God's striking people dead as I'm talking about the communion of the saints. Do I need to do that? Maybe I can just end at chapter, at verse 37 of chapter four. I thought, no, I, I, I think it's important that this account is tied in with that. First, it helps us to understand that what was being practiced in the early church wasn't some early form of socialism. Because when, when Ananias and Sapphira, they, they conspire with one another to sell a piece of property and to only give a part of it. That, that the idea there is that they wanted to make it look as if they were giving all of the proceeds. And when Peter brings Ananias before him and says, Ananias, what is this thing you've done? He says in verse four, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? He's saying, look, it's, it was yours. God's given it to you. You could have not sold your land and been fine. You could have sold it, sold it and said, we're gonna give a third to the church. You could have done that. God has given it to you and entrusted it to you for you to do how you are led. But instead they lied. They lied. 
So it's not, they're not dropping dead because they didn't give, give everything, because they didn't sell everything and give it all to the poor. That's not why they're dropping dead. They, God strikes them dead because they lied to him. They lied to the Holy Spirit. You might think of some of the, the sinful intentions behind this behavior. And instead of trying to figure out what the intent that Ananias and Sapphira had, I search my own heart and think, okay, what are some of the intents that I would have behind this sort of thing? One is doing my works to be seen by men, to be praised by others. This is the common charge that Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount brings before the Pharisees. You're doing all these things. You're giving, you, you bring your offering to the temple to make a loud clang in the pot. You, you're fasting and making yourself look gloomy. You're doing all these things simply so that others can recognize you and say, wow, look at what so-and-so did. I wish I could be more like him. He's giving so much of his money. He's, he's praying all the time and his prayers are so eloquent and amazing and beautiful. And he's fasting all the time. You, look, you can see the dark circles under his eyes and you know, he, he needs a good, a good meal, but he's such a godly man. And the Pharisee is like, yes, yes. Bathe me in your praises. And Jesus says to them in the Sermon on the Mount, that's all well and fine with you. Just realize you're receiving your reward here and now. And if you're happy with a reward here and now, only to face eternity in hell under the wrath of the Lamb of God, then so be it. Instead, as Christ says, we ought to be Whatever we do, he, said, he uses the word secret. We ought to, be, we ought to do it in secret, not, not for the praise of men, not for, to bring earthly glory upon ourselves, but just because we love Christ. Because we love Christ, we love one another, and we serve not with the expe expectation to be praised or to get anything in return, but just because we are simply motivated by the love of Christ in us. We may do these sort of things to make a name for ourselves, Barnabas is called the son of encouragement. Maybe I want to be known by something. I do it to do these things to glorify myself rather than God. It makes me think of the Genesis 11, the building of the Tower of Babel, how they're building this great structure to make a name for themselves. How much of our lives do we strive to make a name for ourselves, to be known, to leave a legacy rather than serving for God's glory? Oftentimes we do these sort of things because we're trying to have the best of both worlds. We, wanna, we want to do the, the very thing that Jesus has said we can't do. We can't serve both God and money. But I want to. I want to have both. I want to have the comforts of being in this wonderful community and all that goes along with it. But I'm gonna have my money and my love for money on the side over here. I can enjoy this on Sunday mornings and go out the door 
and then the rest of the week, enjoy my riches. We can't serve God and money. Whatever he has given us, he's given us for the purpose of serving him and one another. The last thing, why we might do this sort of thing, why Ananias and Sapphira might have done this sort of thing, is we simply forget the, holy, the holiness of God. You know, the, we oftentimes can fall into the trap of thinking, well, there's the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. There's the Old Testament God that was mean and wrathful, and the New Testament God is the God of love and peace. Well, here our New Testament God is striking people dead. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is holy. So we think about 2 Samuel as Uzzah reaches up and touches the Ark of the Covenant and God strikes him dead because he has specifically commanded that, that no one was to touch the Ark. We think of Nadab and Abihu, who after the tabernacle is set up, the glory of the Lord has filled it so much so that Moses and Aaron can't even remain in it and they have to go out and then the priesthood is, is, is cleansed and purified and ready to go in and present their offerings. And Nadab and Abihu go in and we can speculate all we want about why. And I think scripture is very purposeful in not telling us exactly the exact details. It is only that they did what God did not command them to do. They went in and they presented an offering before God that he did not tell them and fire came out from the presence of God and consumed them. This is why the author of Hebrews can tell us, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. God is holy. In fact, in the account of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10, he, God tells Moses, he says, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. God is holy. So even in this account of the, of the beautiful joy and harmony of the church in, this, in these early days, the communion of the saints, them sharing with one another, it doesn't negate the fact that they must do this how God has told them to do it in the love of Christ. Because we have it in this account with Ananias and Sapphira, them looking out for their own, their own welfare, looking to make a name for themselves. And God still says, just as he said in Leviticus 10, I, among those people who are mine, I will be called, I will be sanctified, I will be holy, and I will be glorified. We forget also that, we forget that God, our holy God, has done something wonderful for us through Christ. You see, oftentimes when we act like this, as, as a quick side note, you may think, okay, 
Surely Ananias and Sapphira weren't, aren't the, we, we know better, aren't the only hypocrites in church. Why aren't more of us dropping down dead? And that's a really good question for us to ask. Because I realize I should have been struck dead a long time ago. God is gracious and kind. And oftentimes it is at the, these foundational moments in, in the history of redemption that he does act in such a powerful way. He is setting an example for us. With Nadab and Abihu at the beginning of the temple worship, they weren't the last priests to, to profane the sacrifice. But I guarantee at first, it was a good warning to all the other priests. Okay, we're not supposed to mess with this. God has given us very specific instructions on how we ought to worship him. I'm gonna do that. And here, God says to not only to the early church then, but to us now, he says, don't profane the good thing that I've given you. I've united you to, with, with Christ and I've united you to, with one another. Enjoy it. Don't start seeking your own good in it and profane it. So oftentimes we forget what God has done for us through Christ. It, it, again, in Peter, Second Peter, in the first chapter, he, he talks about supplementing our faith with these various virtues. He says, supplement your faith with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. And he brings us to this point where he says, if you're lacking in any of these things, you have become nearsighted. You've become blind, having forgotten that you have been cleansed from your former sins. I think that of all the reasons why we might behave this way toward one another, the, the way Ananias and Sapphira did, is because we have forgotten what God has done for us in Christ. We forget the great love that he has poured out upon us in Christ. And when we forget the salvation that is ours in Christ, that he has humbled himself to take upon himself not only the law that we were called to keep, that we could never keep, but the punishment of that law. When we forget all that he has done for us and our great dependence upon him, when we forget that, we begin thinking of ourselves and taking our eyes off of Christ. And if we take our eyes off of Christ, it means we're taking our eyes off of one another. And instead of serving you, begin to serve self. The communion of the saints is something beautiful for us to enjoy. It's a, a wonderful gift that God has given us. We need to watch ourselves that we don't pervert it into something that God has not designed it to be. And we can know that as soon as we begin looking at ourselves. As we transition to the Lord's Supper, I think that's a probably a really good place to think of because we can come to the Lord's Supper oftentimes thinking more about ourselves than we are thinking about Christ. We can come to the Lord's Supper and consider whether we might be like that Pharisee that stood up as we talked about in Sunday school. Thank you, God, that I'm not like these people. 
And I could sit there and take the table in an unworthy manner by thinking, I am something special. And I could be standing on my own self-righteousness and thinking, I deserve this. Or we might think so much of ourselves or so, much, so little of ourselves to think, there is no possible way that this could be for me because I have sinned too much. I have done so much that Christ could never cover this. And then you're taking it in an un unworthy manner because Christ says, I poured out my very lifeblood for you. When he died almost 2,000 years ago, he died for all of our sins. All that we have committed this morning, that we committed in the past, that we will commit. He died for it. He says, I've covered it. So when we sit down to enjoy this meal, we need to enjoy it realizing that it is a picture of what Christ has done for us. That he gave his body and blood for us. So that we can celebrate and have joy in taking this meal, understanding that he has covered all that we could never possibly do or cover. He has done it for us. It is finished. And then, it's a, again, a beautiful picture. This is, we call it communion because in one sense, we're communing with our Savior by participating spiritually in him, but then we take it together because it is the communion of saints. It's a fellowship that we, it's a thing that we do together. We celebrate it together. This is why Paul, when he talks about uh, communion, while he talks about the Lord's Supper with the Corinthian church, he says, you also take it unworthily if you're not esteeming one another more highly than yourselves. If you're taking it, and, and again, you're taking it and thinking poorly of someone there and uh, someone who's in your context. If you're taking it and you, um, you have something against your brother, he says, that how can we be participants in the, the body and blood of Christ and not be willing to share that love and forgiveness with one another? So we can take it in an unworthy manner in that way. So as we pass around the elements this morning, first off, I would ask you not to take it if you are not a believer, if you not, do not have faith in Jesus Christ. This is a family meal and it's, it is meant to be enjoyed by those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if you are here and have faith in Jesus Christ, it is an open table. You are invited to it. You are invited to enjoy because Christ says, I have poured myself out for you. Take and eat. Let's pray and we'll, we'll take it together. Father, I pray for us. <clears throat> I pray for me. I pray that you would be working in our church 
to make more and more evident the reality of the unity that we have in Christ. That you would, through the power of your Holy Spirit, convict us of sin, open our eyes to those areas of our life that we are holding so tightly to, reveal those things to me, Father, that you would help me, that you would help us to let go of those things, to find my contentment in you, to find my contentment in Christ, to find my contentment in the blessings that you have poured out upon me. And when, Father, whether out of riches or even poverty, sometimes I have a brother or sister in need, I can share. Father, move us to love one another in this way. This is not a work that we can do because it is so contrary to our fleshly desires. We realize that we need your help to do this. We need you to move in us in a powerful way to allow us to love one another the way that you have loved us, to pour out all that we have, all that you have given us for the good and the building up of your church. As we come to the Lord's Supper, I pray that you would nourish us spiritually on Christ, that through this little meal, you would impress upon our hearts how Intimately, you have united us with your son. And then how intimately you have united us with one another. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.